From the Montana Kaiman, University of Montana's independent student-run newspaper, this is the Kaiman Cast for the week of March 7th. I'm Austin Amistoy. On February 9th, UM students received an alert email warning about increased reports of drug-facilitated assaults at Missoula bars, more commonly known as roofies. So far this semester, the Student Advocacy Resource Center has received 10 reports of roofie assaults, five times the amount they normally receive, raising concerns about student safety and awareness. On this episode, Kaima News reporter Christine Compton goes behind the data and shares one student's harrowing story of her own drugging at a Missoula bar. Christine, welcome to the Kaiman cast. You have some very important information to impart to listeners today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to dive right into what we heard off the top, Christine. There's some pretty alarming numbers out right now circulating when it comes to roofies and, um, you know, date rape drugs, drug facilitated assaults in Missoula. What is is so alarming about the numbers that we're seeing here? Like what what caused this, this email to be sent out in the first place? The reason why that email was sent out was because it was just so much more than they would normally see. UMPD sent out the email after they received five reports of drug-facilitated assault, all from SARC, and all five of them within a single week, most expected to come from the exact same weekend. Wow. And those weren't even all of it. Um, The five that UMPD received were sent from SARC from that week. But just a few weeks later, Sark would have 10 in total, meaning at least five more had come in since the um, since the email was sent out. Wow. And that, that all happened within the span of a few weeks this semester? Yeah. At the time, uh, at least February 21st, there were 10 reports, both direct and indirect reports of drug facilitated assault. And what that basically means is students can go to Sark and they said, I think I was drugged. I think I experienced this. And my friend also experienced it. And those direct reports plus those indirect reports added up to 10 in total. And that was as of February 21st. All 10 of those happened since the beginning of the semester on January 18th. Wow. Let's actually expand on on this number a little bit, though. What are the crimes or what is the crime we're actually talking about here? Like, what are roofies? Drug-facilitated assault is any time that you are given a substance without your knowledge, Mm. uh, perpetrated by someone else. Um, There are three drugs that people typically think of when it comes to drug-facilitated assault. It's important to know that these aren't the only drugs this can be used with, and it's not the drugs themselves that are the crime, but it's the people using them. Mm. But the drugs themselves are usually known as rohypnol, GHB, and ketamine. And almost always, they're used with alcohol. So rohypnol is, it's like a tranquilizer. It's actually illegal in the United States, but in countries where it's legal, it's typically used for sleeping medicine, uh, sometimes as a form of anesthesia. It's particularly dangerous because it's colorless, it's odorless, and it's tasteless. It's nearly impossible to identify. Now the brand version of rohypnol now has a slightly blue center. So if you have a clear drink, it's slightly blue, but I mean, good luck if you have anything other than a clear drink. And Mm. something as low as one milligram, that can get you out for eight hours. Wow. Other drugs like GHB and ketamine, they have a bit stronger tastes. GHB is salty, ketamine is really bitter, harder to hide, but still really powerful. Either way, it can make you feel like you're out of control of your own body. Usually, you can't remember a single thing afterwards. 
Right. And one, I imagine the point of using these drugs is that they are very hard to detect, even if you're the one drinking the drink, right? Like mm-hmm. they're either being masked by the flavor of your beverage or they have no flavor at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that makes them not only really dangerous, but also pretty hard to investigate. Absolutely. And that's the other thing. The actual effects of them, they're associated with drinking. I mean, every time you picture what is it like being roofied or what would it be like to be drugged? You picture someone slipping something into someone's drink. It's alcoholic. And you got to understand when you're out at the bar, when you're out drinking, you're going to expect for some slight memory problems. You're going to expect to feel a little dizzy. You're going to expect to feel a little bit just out of it in general. So a lot of people don't realize until much later, hours later, days later, that maybe something bad had happened. And even if you realize immediately, it's going to be really hard to actually track it. I have to imagine, though, Christine, I'm hearing you talk about how subtle these you know, chemicals are when they're added to a drink and how easily someone could slip something into a drink. These, This crime has to be something that's pretty hard to investigate. Is that Has that been the case? It's nearly impossible to investigate. Within 24 hours, sometimes barely afterwards, um, the drug completely metabolizes. It goes through your system. Hmm. Um, Sometimes it takes less than a few hours. Sometimes it feels terrible to say you're lucky if you have about 36. But in the time that you are out of it, as soon as you take that sip, the clock is ticking. But for the most part, if you go to bed afterwards and you wake up, 12, 15 hours later, all evidence is gone. Hmm. And there's no way to actually prove that it happened. Okay, Christine. So this email warning of this uptick in roofie reports came from UMPD, but Mm -hmm. Sark had the most reports on hand. Mm -hmm. And and Sark, I should add, is the Student Advocacy Resource Center here on campus. They sort of advocate for students who are the victims of crimes, you know, abuse, domestic abuse, that sort of thing. So... How do the different law enforcement agencies in Missoula handle these cases? Because, you know, these druggings are primarily happening, I assume, in bars, which are off campus. So, you know, when these are being investigated or when people are reporting them, who is handling, like, which parts of the investigation? Well, in theory, if it happens off campus, it's in Missoula Police Department's hands. Last time I contacted them, they had zero reports for months, if not years. It's, in theory, it should be their job. However, what we're finding is that because most people don't know they were roofied well after the time period where they could possibly investigate it, it's really hard to land those official reports. Mm. And uh, what we're seeing with SARC, now I should say, UMPD wouldn't be receiving these numbers either if it wasn't for SARC. Ultimately, students aren't going to the police when they feel as though they've been drugged. People in general aren't going to the police. They're going to the local resource centers. They're going to places where they can find emotional help. But often people... Oftentimes, people don't think to go to the law, often because they don't realize that it's an assault to begin with. I am thinking that, like, a lot of the victims of roofies, at least on a campus, you know, are probably right, you know, riding that cusp of legal or non-legal drinker, right? So Mm -hmm. I feel like that that probably has to play into that decision-making calculus. Absolutely. Fun fact, at both UM and the Montana state level, if you are illegally drinking, you're drinking underage, you're under 21, and you get caught up into a crime or you need to call the police or you need to get to the hospital, you will not be charged with underage drinking or minor in possession. Because the whole point of those laws was to prevent young people from being in danger. Um, And that's the most common thing is people don't know that exists. Someone who I was speaking to who was a victim of this crime, multiple people who I was speaking to were victims of these crimes, 
they didn't know that UM has a medical amnesty policy. And it's a relatively recent thing, only implemented within the past few years. Christine, you said that you did talk with a, a few people who experienced um, a drug-facilitated assault. So I was hoping you could tell us one of their stories. There's a person who I spoke to named Lily, and we're choosing to withhold Lily's last name to protect her identity as a survivor. Lily is a student at UM who was underage at the time. She was out with her friends. It was one of her friends' uh, 21st birthday, and they had gotten back from a house party, and they were going to a local bar. A lot of Lily's story comes from the recollections of her friend who was there, Torin Trout. Just kind of hanging out. She got a, a vodka cranberry, um, and we were sitting at a table together. And she, we were just drinking and having a good time. And she put her cup down to go uh, use the bathroom. When she came back from the restroom, she found that her friends had moved off to the bar, and now surrounding her table were six men. She ultimately decided to go up to the men and asked for her drink, and they gave her one. She had gone back to her friends, she sipped it just a few times. Um, until she started really stumbling, um, like falling backwards on the floor uh, of the bar multiple times, uh, seemed very incoherent, um, more so than expected for how much like I knew she had drank, so uh, but I wasn't really thinking about, like, the possibility of her necessarily getting roofied. I thought, like, she hadn't eaten anything that day or whatnot. But uh, as the night went on, she just got, like, more and more incoherent. Um, and to the point where she could, like, barely stand on her own. And at that point, me and the other friend decided it was time to get out of there. By the time that they had gotten back to their house, one of which was her roommates, was one of her friends there, she was completely unresponsive. No matter what they did, she wouldn't wake up. So we ended up just picking her up and putting her in the shower and turning it on, and that got her up, and we took her into her room, and at that, we were, it became pretty clear. She had no idea where she was. She didn't know we were in our house. She had, didn't know she was... She asked where her room was when she was, like, standing in it. When she woke up the next morning, she wasn't hungover. She felt strange, but none of her usual signs of overdrinking. Mm. And she didn't seem hungover to her friends either. And when she mentioned that she couldn't remember anything, that's when the epiphany sort of came, that maybe she was drugged. So, in Lily's case, neither she nor her friends um, sought medical help during that process, and, and she was able to overcome the drug, you know, overnight. Is that sort of how that played out? Yeah. It was, uh, Torin Trout was running the shower over her when he was thinking about maybe going to the hospital just to get her stomach pumped. At the time, they thought that she had just overdrank. But when she had woken up, their their attention was sort of on that. But mm. That was the time where they thought about seeking medical attention, but they yeah. never went to the hospital. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like L Lily was pretty fortunate to have, you know, made it through this event, I'm, I guess, relatively unscathed physically. But, of course, we know that there are 
surely some lasting effects that come with an attack of that nature. But I'm wondering, you know, shifting focus to the bars, how much responsibility do the bars and bartenders carry when it comes to the safety of their customers in these situations? Well, I guess one of the most important things to know is that the only person at fault is the person who is assaulting someone else. And so what you're finding is that bars really are, they don't like this either. They hate it. They think it's terrible. They they just want to create an environment where people can have fun, where they can relax, where they can enjoy a friendly environment. And some of the people who I spoke to talked about how they, they keep an eye out for people, whether it be physical body language, whether it be what they say. Um, a lot of people say, uh, I should say some of the bartenders I spoke to said they have sort of this instinct about it. It's a matter of maybe street smarts, maybe just naturally knowing that person looks uncomfortable, just a bad feeling in your gut. One of the bartenders I was speaking to, she's the manager of the the rhino, the rhinoceros. Um, She's Anne Hancock. She mentioned that she always sort of keeps an eye out for the people who, she said, definitely don't look like they should be speaking to each other. Um, She watches for body language or someone starts to curl in or kind of turn away from the other person. It's always a bad sign. Something that... um, she and other bartenders do is they typically like confront confront them, whether very subtly or um, very directly. They usually like to make it known that there's help available if you want it. So, Christine, on Monday, we're going to have a deeper look on the common cast of preventing and treating the effects of uh, these drugs. But, you know, for now, w- with the knowledge, as you said, that the only person to to blame for for these crimes is obviously the perpetrator. But knowing that, what have you heard about how to stay safe? If you're in a situation where you might be in danger, one of the biggest things you can do is just be aware. Just keep your drink with you. Keep it in your hand. Watch your friends, too. It shouldn't be up to you or just your friends to keep each other to keep themselves safe. Work as a team because you are a team. It's sad to say that when you're out trying to have fun, you still have to be so worried. And maybe you don't have to be worried, but just be be knowledgeable, know that it can happen, and make plans accordingly. It's as simple as planning for, if someone tries to hand me a drink, this is what I'll say. I'll say, no, thank you, or sorry, I don't like that one. Um, Even that will help you in the moment quickly recall something. Just have a guideline for what to do so you're not completely on your own. Okay, Christine, given everything you've heard from the sources you talked to for this story, in your opinion, should students be worried for their safety when they go out right now? Like, is it, you know, is it a dangerous time to be going to Missoula bars? And and it, if so, or if not, you know, h- how should we sort of perceive the moment we're in when it comes to these druggings? That's a sad thing is that it's not new. And people shouldn't think that this is going to jump out of the bushes and get them. It's not a guaranteed thing. People shouldn't be afraid to have fun. People shouldn't be afraid to go out and enjoy the world. Otherwise, you let the assaulters win. Mm -hmm. You want to still be able to live your life, but we need to be able to live our lives aware. It may not be new, but it sounds like maybe it's on the rise. More cases are being reported. Maybe it's because people feel confident enough to go to Sark, or maybe because it's happening more often. At the end of the day, we're never gonna know, but it is something we need to be aware of, and it is something that we need to prepare for.
Once again, Christine Compton sharing the story behind a reported rise in drug-facilitated assaults in Missoula. Christine, thanks for coming on and sharing all of your reporting. Thank you so much, Austin. On Monday's episode of The Second Look, Eleanor Smith goes deeper into what you need to know to stay safe at the bars. You can read Christine's full story on Missoula's rise in roofie reports in our paper, out on newsstands and online today. That's it for this week's episode. Next time, it's Women's History Month, and two UM programs are elevating women-owned businesses to the next level. I'll see you there.